Welcome to Take Control of Your Career, where we discuss strategies to get you in the driver's seat of your career. Here's your host, Lauren Herring. All right, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here on Take Control of Your Career. I'm so excited to welcome Samantha Foster. She is the Managing Director at ZRG Partners, who specializes in executive search in aerospace, defense, and high tech. So thank you so much for joining us, Samantha. Thank you. I mean, you know, certainly I respect everything that you do and the work of the impact group. And I'm so glad you've invited me to be a part of this. You know, I I feel really I feel very honored. I am usually the interviewer. So this is very different for me. I don't even you know, I interview people every day. So but I never sit on the other side. (laughs) Great. Well, I hope this is going to be a fun and engaging conversation. There's so much to talk about, because one of the areas that I know you're so passionate about is diversity and inclusion. And so that's going to be an area that I really want to dig into deeper here. And that concept has been really at the forefront of the conversations around human capital lately. And It just seems that companies that haven't taken it so seriously before are actually finally getting the message and they're coming to you and say, Samantha, we really need to diversify our leadership team. And so what are you hearing from your clients about what they're looking for in the current landscape? Yeah, and I have heard for, I've been doing recruiting for 17 years. I've heard it's night. it would be nice if you could get a female or a diverse candidate for years from my clients. So it's not that it's totally new, but the pressure and the urgency on it has totally changed where it's not a just nice to have anymore. It's very much a requirement. And I think what has happened is some of those clients have had diverse or female candidates turn them down if they're not already diverse or if they can't like show that they have good policies in place to, you know, to help them move up the ladder and those things. So our candidates are very savvy if they are female or diverse, they want to join the right companies. So I have clients that are in some stages of, you know, they do a really good job of it or they don't. And those that are really sort of, it's a much more urgent need because they don't have sort of good women in diversity to put on their website, on their board, on their leadership team. They are willing to look at the requirements a little bit more and not to put um, a woman or a diverse candidate at a disadvantage or put them into a role that they're unqualified for because no one succeeds then, but to really take a look back at maybe those sort of five must-have qualifications that you always used for that role and say, which are the couple that are making the pool so that we don't have much diversity? And can we do something? Can we add a mentor? Can we, you know, do some training in that area? Can we somehow, you know, do something with if the requirements are so tight, you're not getting the women in diversity instead of just sort of beating your recruiter up and saying, why don't we have more women in diverse candidates? We really have taken a better approach of late. They've been really ready to listen to, okay, that you know, we really need to look at those requirements so that we can attract that and put that in there. So it it's not a myth. It's really become much more urgent and much more vital. So, yeah. And then, the, like you said, the women and diverse candidates who are in high demand right now, they're paying attention to the companies who might be looking like, oh, they're just kind of checking a box here. And yeah. I, I, don't know if this is really the culture. So it really is looking at how can 
companies not only diversify their leadership, but it's about culture as well. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a change. Yeah, they don't want to be the last one in the door either. They want to know that you actually are going to hire more people that look and sound like them. So, you know, they really want to see that in longevity and policies and procedures. Yeah, absolutely. And we obviously know that there's a lack of diversity at the top in general, whether you're looking at the top role of CEO or the C-suite and and senior uh, leaders in general. Uh, the fields that you focus on, tech, engineering, aerospace, defense, there's an acute lack of diversity in those executive ranks. So when, so then it's really about that next level down. How do you get people ready for those C-suite opportunities? So what advice do you have for people, particularly women or people of color, to show that they are ready for that next mm-hmm. level, especially if they're interviewing at a new company where they don't necessarily have a brand to go on? Right. And I think it's a great question and I think it's an easy answer. So you just need to shout that you're ready. You need to be confident and you need to tell your network internally, externally, you need to socialize it. You don't want to look dissatisfied. You want to look aspiring, meaning, you know, I don't want to say my job is too small. I want to say, you know, love my job been doing it for a couple of years. I'm really ready for that next challenge and not just keep your head down and keep working and hope that somebody notices that you're ready because people make assumptions. Oh, she's happy. She's clearly working hard. You know, that's all great. So if you don't socialize it and you don't network it and you don't really let people know that you're ready or that you want to be more challenged, they're going to make whatever assumption they're going to make. And that may not be agree with that. So it's really important to do that. It's also as you move up, and this is really important, that you network more. That's part of your job. If you are talking to the same 15, 25, 30 people in the same circle all the time, you need to get out there and network. (laughs) It's not easy during a pandemic. I mean, some things are easier because like this, we're in Zoom versus in person. We could do that in a moment's notice. There's a lot of um, sort of Zoom networking in lieu of trade shows. And it may be like, you're like, oh, I just can't do any more Zooms. But try it. And definitely when we're out there and we're back, sort of trade shows for me are are a great way to network. It's important. It's part of your job. You know, getting the next opportunity is being in the right place at the right time. So if you have a whole if you have a whole network that is listening out for you, I mean, that's going to help you be in the right place at the right time to hear about that next opportunity. So Mm -hmm. that's my advice. Shout it. Yeah, that's great advice. I have two thoughts based on what you're saying there. First of all, you know, to to signal that you're ready, you really also need to demonstrate that you're already exhibiting the skills that they're Mm -hmm. looking for in your current role. So even if you're a level down, it's not necessarily saying, well, I can do it. But look, I've done exactly what you're asking for, even though I haven't had the title. And the other piece on that networking, I have a great story that just happened with one of the women we were coaching recently where, you know, she was looking at a job opportunity at her current company and she was, she was a senior director, you know, looking at this VP opening and I'm like, oh, I just don't know if I'm going to apply. I want it, but don't know if I'm ready. She and her coach worked through it, decided she was going to approach her manager about it. And he literally said, you know, I've been thinking about you for this role, but I wasn't going to approach you about it unless you came to me. Right. And to your point, you just have to tell people that you're ready for it. Otherwise, they're going to make assumptions that you don't want it. 
Yeah. And I would say in women specifically, they'll make an assumption like, oh, you know, they have little kids They're They're not ready for that. That's going to be more travel. And you're like, I can't believe I got passed over for that. But nobody knew that you were ready and you were willing to do some of the things that that next role might entail. So I think it's important, but, you know, I don't want to like sort of overstress. Uh, it is harder during your pandemic to network, but it will get better. I mean, I, I yeah. think we're going to see that certainly in the fall that there is like a pent up demand for that, actually. Yeah. Well, and so what do you say, going back to what we were talking about, where there's a limited supply of folks who already have those titles? So what do you say to a company who says they're only looking for people who've had that CXO role or the uh, VP level role already? I get that a lot. And we usually test it. And there's two things. One, they may not need it. And one, they may need it anyway. You know, maybe they're in trouble and they really, you know, if they're in trouble and they really need a CFO that's already been a CFO and gone through these problems, that's a different, you know, I'll I'll cover both of those. A lot of times when we test it, we're like, okay, so we're looking at somebody who's going to make a lateral. Tell me about your company. What's better about it? Because, you know, there's a, a, a starkness and a transparency that has happened during COVID. Like, you know, you're not going to get somebody to just, you know, take a look at your opportunity if it's a lateral, unless there's something better about it. Let's be serious. It's pandemic. People are, you know, risk averse, you know, with, with, with their opportunities. So I think it's really important to ask that question and test and make sure they do need that. In some cases, they do, because we do work with companies that are in trouble. And in those cases, we still try and figure out, is there a story that we can tell, you know, that will track somebody to a lateral? Are you willing to pay over market? Because if if we're looking for a CFO and we're looking at CFOs, well, then they're probably already making market. Are you ready to pay over for the issues that you currently have that this new CFO is going to have to solve? So there are cases where they really do need that. But I would say that's the exception rather than the rule. You know, but you have to ask them. They're they're used to saying, well, just, you know, if they've been a CFO, clearly they can be a CFO. So it's easy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Great point. And I love how you're also bringing the perspective of the employer and what they're looking for, what's going on in their mind to this conversation, mm-hmm. especially for job seekers who are watching, because a lot of times we get so tunnel focused on what's going on in our world and what what we're looking for that we're not necessarily keeping in mind the perspective of the employer. And you need to just make it so easy as to how to connect the dots mm-hmm. for the person interviewing for you. Right, right. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, Samantha, you also recruit for board roles, and that's another area where we just hear so much in the news about the importance of having more women on the board to help shepherd diversity throughout the culture of an organization. So for women who are looking to get on a corporate board, what do they need to keep in mind to position themselves for that? How is that different? Yeah, and again, you have to shout that you're ready and you want a board role because there is not necessarily an assumption that you're ready, willing to take on this other, you know, responsibility that's going to be in addition to your current job. So you have to let people know that you're ready and want a board role. A good way to do that is to go get one, a volunteer one, like anything local, because it shows a potential corporate board that you understand the function of boards, you know, if you've been on one before versus it being sort of, well, I want to be on a board because that sounds good. 
So, you know, it's good to to go out and, and get on on some boards and that may change your mind. Frankly, you may say, oh, that's a lot of work. I'm not going to be able to do that and my current job. But if you're still moving forward and you want to be on a board, again, the networking is key. Um, there's a lot of pressure on uh, public companies, especially to have very diverse boards. But boards serve a purpose. They get through, you know, they get you through the hard times like a pandemic, like uh, you know, situations, they also help your company stay ahead. So it's not enough just to be female and diverse and say, I want to be on a board. You also have to offer something. And we have, um, a board director, a gentleman named Chuck King that has worked at ZRG and some other firms for 30 years. And, you know, he keeps his fingers on the pulse because that's what he does exclusively. And we had him talk at one of our Lumen meetings, which I can talk about later. But And he said the following things are in demand right now. Digital transformation, if you have that, you want to make sure you highlight that. That is something a lot of companies are looking for. And if they're looking for female and diverse candidates, if you have that, that might really be your ticket in. Risk mitigation, we can thank COVID for that. That's definitely a hot button right now. International experience is always sought after. You know, certainly you want to highlight that. And then PL responsibility is always going to be key for a board position. Having it, you know, having been there and sort of held that profit and loss responsibility before is really key. But I think, you know, again, you, you've got to let people know that you're ready. And then highlight those things that are important right now. And I think in five years, that could be five different things. You know, probably P&L will still be there, but the rest will might change. So, you know, it's important also to make sure that you're adding something, not just, you know, quantity of, of sort of female and diverse as well. Yeah, that's a great point. One of the things that we talk about with women who are not only just looking for a job or a board role, but women who are looking to progress their career, talk about how to get a raise, how to position themselves for the next step. It really is, just like you said, what is important to the organization right now? And use those buzzwords. You know, they're, they might be a little buzzy and cliched right now, but guess what? They work and you have to pay attention to what the organization is interested in and focused on. And those are the things that they're going to be looking for in the next level leaders. So right. yeah, great points. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the other things that I'm so impressed with you about your passion on this topic is how you have personally gotten involved in the discussion around the pay disparities between men and women. And one of the things that has continually kept women's pay depressed, which is that companies will ask for what you made in your previous salary, which now many states have made illegal. And I know you had something to do with that in moving that law forward in Connecticut. So tell us about that process and why you're so passionate about that. So I'm passionate about it because for the past 17 years, I have heard it. You know, I've heard People tell me about their role and responsibility, diverse and female candidates. And when we talk about, and so how much do you make? I'm just stunned into silence. Like, really? Oh, I wish I could just say, oh my God, you're so underpaid. Like, that's that's not the right salary for that job. So I've seen it. And that's what made me passionate about it. And then we talked a little bit about networking before. And I was in the right place at the right time. And that was Cuba. This whole thing came about because I went to Cuba on a Goodwill mission. There were politicians there. There was a lot of different people there. It was a baseball thing. 
for my son. And I went to Cuba. We I ended up talking to somebody about this passion, and they introduced me to the congressman in Connecticut that was introducing this bill. So I met with him. I told him, you know, what I had seen. California and Massachusetts were before us, before Connecticut did it. And I had been working in, in specifically California and listening to sort of that first year of like, oh, you know, sort of the complaints and the things that were that this law, you know, was sort of turning on its head and for the right reason, you know, definitely for the right reason. So I ended up working with this congressman and I sat on the committee, which if you ever get a chance to do this, it was really fun. You sit in a room and people for and against are all together and we're all trying to hash out a bill. It's like a huge argument. And so I was there representing, yes, the wage gap is real. And, you know, knowing the prior salary really affects what that potential offer is going to be every single time. It's based on what they made in the past. So it's like a never ending problem. You know, it will just keep on going unless we change something. So I ended up testifying on the committee and then I had to testify in front of the entire Congress, which was, um, you know, a, a little something out of the ordinary that I did. And uh, yeah, it was very interesting. I mean, I, I go back and the ta- there's a tape of it and, you know, they're asking me, why don't women just lie? That was the against position. Why don't women just lie about their self? I mean... So there wasn't really a good reason. You know, I had already seen California and Massachusetts were doing it. It wasn't stopping companies from wanting to be in California and Massachusetts because they couldn't ask prior salary. You can ask expectation. And, you know, I think it's really a fair way to go. So I was really happy that that bill passed and I was proud of it. It was a little scary to see how bills come together and like just (laughs) really the back. Part of all of that wasn't as, as, as sophisticated as I thought it would be. It was just a huge argument. So Truly uh, the sausage making like they talk about. Yeah, they called it the sausage making. Oh, you're seeing the sausage making. But it was really, I felt great to be a part of that, to be honest, to have that rule become law in Connecticut a couple of years yeah. ago. Well, that's such an exciting process. And like you said, I you should be proud about being a part of something that is moving things forward for, and, you know, like you said, companies can still ask salary expectations, but mm-hmm. if, if, uh, if you're con- going to continually keep women's wages depressed that way, then that's going to just continue this challenge yeah. that we see in our, in our, um, country in our world. So one of the other interesting things about you, and I, I loved just getting to know you when we first oh, met thanks, your background, uh, because a fun <laughs> fact about you is that you started as an aerospace engineer, and then you made a really significant career shift into the world of executive search. So how did that happen? And are there any tips that you have to share for career changers who are listening? So I think if I had co-opted or interned as an engineer before I got my BSME, I would not have been an engineer because I got into engineering. I worked for Martin Marietta back then. That's Lockheed Martin now. And I only did engineering for a couple of years before I was like, oh, I don't know. This is for me. It was a little dry. So, I mean, ultimately, I'm a tech person. Like I like technology. If I go to a client and they don't give me a plant tour, I'm actually disappointed. I want to go see what you got back there. I want to look at all your machines and how you do things. Like that's really interesting to me. So I think deep down I have like a tech side, but I moved from like engineering to supply chain to sales and marketing and program management. 
And like the sales and marketing program management, that was perfect for me. It's really high travel though. So I moved from Ohio to Connecticut and I was trying to get another job and I was working with a recruiter and I was all the way down. I was a finalist and they said, you know, as long we'll give you the offer, as long as you can assure us that at a moment's notice, you can get on a plane and fly to a customer. And I was like, I have a two and four year old and a husband that travels. So that's, they're not really self-sufficient at that age. So I can't do that. And I was really disappointed. The recruiter was disappointed. And he goes, you should do what I do. I'm like, what do you do? I have no idea. I mean, I fell into it and I researched what he did. He's like, yeah, it doesn't have that much travel and you can really control it. And I was like, all right, I'll try it. I got a good network like that. Maybe I'd be good at that. So that was in 2004. So yeah, it was fell into it, but Ultimately, you know, the network, initially I stayed in aerospace and defense. That's what I specialize in, high tech and other things that are relative. And I have placed people I've worked with. You know, I feel like I have a really good understanding of the companies because I did actually work in them. Not, you know, not just always as a recruiter, but as a, an engineer and, and then a manager. So like I fell into it. Most of the people in recruiting worked in whatever industry that they specialize in now if they're executive search they, it just gives you credibility and understanding and passion as well yeah well and what you've been talking about for job seekers for anyone who wants to progress up the career ladder in general it's all about your network and you know any any type of role benefits from that but certainly yours especially does so it's a, a great fit right. for you yeah so yeah good switch Great. Well, as we wrap up, I want to hit on one of the big challenges that we always hear from job seekers, and that's that they're trying to catch the attention of a recruiter, and then they email them and they never hear back from them. So when when I talk to job seekers, I always try to help people understand, well, you know, they're working for a client with very specific targets, and if you're not fitting what they're looking for, you know, they're hearing from tons and tons of people, so you can't expect to hear back from them because they don't work for you. But on the other hand, what guidance can you give to job seekers as they're reaching out to recruiters and executive search firms on how they can uh, stand out and and hear back? So that's something that we just always hear from people. And if you have any insight on that, I'm sure that I'm sure you hear that. Yeah. So um, in terms of job seekers, And I I said this to you before, Lauren, when you need a recruiter is not when you meet a recruiter. You probably met a recruiter some other time when you, you know, just like it's easier to get a job when you already have a job. You know, there's a couple of things that are true. So it goes back to sort of the networking. And this is even more like sort of building your personal brand with not just me, but all people that are, you know, sort of in that recruiting profession, a lot of times I'll maybe, you know, meet somebody at a cocktail party and they'll answer a lot of questions for me. Like uh, recently I was trying to, you know, get to the finer points of software as a service versus e-commerce. And I just ended up knowing who to call, who would be helpful to me to answer these questions. Or I've got a position and I'm like, oh, I know, I I know Terry is going to have some really good referrals for this. You know, so if you're kind of, it's like a perpetual 360 degree review, this networking thing, like if you are seen as somebody that's helpful and 
positive and responsive by recruiting, not just me. And I'm not looking for friends. I'm looking for, you know, responsiveness when I need it, when I ask you for a referral. Even if you don't have one, you say, I'm sorry, I don't know. You don't just ignore me. So it's kind of like building goodwill. And this doesn't mean just recruiting. It also means your entire network. If you're seen as sort of the helpful go-to person who will answer a question and take that time, you're probably a better employee also. So it's not just, will a recruiter remember you? It's also that they'll remember you in a way that makes them want to present you for a role because now they feel like, okay, well, if they're that way with me, they're probably that way, you know, and companies usually want to hire nice, helpful people. So I think you have to build your, your brand a bit. If you keep sending me your resume every two weeks to tell me that it's updated, that's, you know, if you only reach out to me when you need something, Unfortunately, I have a lot of that. So it doesn't like it doesn't help you stand out. So, you know, I think it's really important. It's also important to know that you need to know a lot of recruiters. I only have six to 12 projects at any one time and none of them may suit you. So you got to go find all the other recruiters. And I think just in general, just being sort of helpful and open networking and seen as that is going to be more important than which recruiters you specifically know, because someone will refer you to a recruiter they know, you know. Yeah, I think the moral of the story of our entire conversation is it's all about the network. And it's not only who you know, but who knows you. And how are you giving back? And I mean, even their story about your involvement in the Connecticut lawmaking process was about was started because you were giving back. So you never know where these situations in your professional life are going or your personal life are going to intersect with your person, your professional life. And, um, you know, just the, the more people, you know, the more you constantly are nurturing that network, it's going to come back around to you every time. Absolutely. I think it's really very dependent on sort of how that network sees you and and if they'll refer you for things, you know, obviously you got to do a good job too. (laughs) But But that's just table stakes. The other things, your network and your, your business acumen, you know, are you a nice person? You know, those are the things that, uh, that really set you apart at the end of the day. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Wonderful. Well, Samantha, it's been great talking with you. I appreciate you joining me on this conversation, and I'm sure you've helped a lot of people with all your great perspectives. So I just appreciate you being a part of Take Control of Your Career. Thank you so much, Lauren. Thanks for having me. I'd love to share. So, Thank you for listening to Take Control of Your Career with Lauren Herring. Be certain to check the show notes for our guests' information. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show so that you don't miss an episode. Want to get control of your career now? Visit www.earnyourworthcareers.com. You can get your own career coach or download a chapter from Lauren's book for free.